You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 23, where W. Blaine Dowler returns to fill in for Dave and brings us the saga of the Comics Code Authority and the Stuntmaster. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I'm still not Dave. I'm Blaine Dowler, fellow podcaster and Daredevil fan. Today we'll be talking about the Stuntmaster, or as I like to call this episode, how editorial interference and the Comics Code Authority destroyed two characters and severely impeded another. The last time you heard me as a guest host on this podcast, I talked about Marvel launching Daredevil in an attempt to lay claim to a Golden Age trademark that was up for grabs, and I alluded to the fact that we'd be talking about the Comics Code Authority once more. Both of those little pieces of information will be important this week. And this week we're going to have to start off with a bit of a history lesson. About every 20 years or so, the current generation of parents convince themselves that the current generation of youth is more corrupt than the parents themselves were at that age. Naturally, the problems they perceive couldn't possibly be a result of selected memory or bad parenting, so they look for something in the media that didn't exist when they were kids that may be responsible. In the 1930s, blame was placed on the gangster and tough guy movies, leading to the formation of the Motion Picture Association of America. Now, originally, the MPAA's responsibility was just to rate the movies, not in terms of good or bad, but in terms of appropriate or not appropriate for children. The MPAA in this era took the right approach. While some countries had a single certified stamp for all movies, the MPAA had multiple categories, including G, PG, and R. X would come later and be replaced by NC-17 when companies invented multiple X ratings as marketing tools. PG-13 wouldn't exist until it was invented to deal with the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So this sated the parents of the 1930s, and they'd stayed that way for 20 years. But as I said, it takes every about 20 years or so before this comes up. In the 1970s, they were blaming Dungeons and Dragons. In the 1990s, they started blaming video games. In the 1950s, it was comics. Horror comics were on the rise, and new generation of parents were looking at their corrupt children. One such parent was psychiatrist Frederick Wortham, who did an intensive study of the day's youth, including his own delinquent son, who was a big comic book fan, and he published his study as The Seduction of the Innocent in 1954. His results were questionable in the day, as a result, for example, of not understanding that correlation and causation are not the same thing, just because there's a correlation doesn't mean one causes the other. In all of these studies, the correlations found between media and violent youth tend to be weaker than the correlations between drowning deaths and ice cream consumption. Eating ice cream doesn't make you drown, and people do not generally eat ice cream at funerals after someone has drowned. There's no cause-effect relationship there. They are both effects of a common cause of warm weather. Anyway, since then, Wortham's original data was released, namely in 2010, and that brings it even further into question where we're seeing signs of manipulation and tampering and more, but by that time the damage had been done. He had managed to push his agenda to the level of U.S. congressional hearings. He pointed to the level of sex and violence in horror titles, particularly those published by EC Comics, and also leveled criticisms at superhero comics for various reasons. 
For example, he failed to understand that Batman had no women in his life because he was so obsessed with his mission, and instead suggested that he had no girlfriend because he didn't need one with Robin around. Poof. Batwoman and Vicky Vale were quickly created, and the Catwoman was returned from the dead, all vying for Batman's attentions and giving him a decision to make. Meanwhile, Robin didn't bother to make a choice, dating one girl as Robin and another as Dick Grayson, because a two-timing heterosexual is clearly a better role model than a faithful homosexual. Right. Ultimately, the comic book industry formed the Comics Code Authority as a form of self-regulation. Unfortunately, they did so in a limited fashion. Instead of a graduating scale, as the MPAA had done, comic books were either approved or not, and the rules for approval were pretty restrictive. Thus was born the saccharine era of the 1950s, where everyone's an old chum, all characters were either good or evil, with no gray areas, sex and violence were extremely limited, and the actual plots conceived by our villains were also very limited in scope. You could still publish anything you wanted to publish, but it was extremely difficult to find a story that would stock comic books without the CCA stamp of approval. The upside of all this is that it gave Peter David great material to use as the basis for comedy in his Hulk run, but that's a subject for Dave's other podcast. So with that backstory covered, it's time to get back to Daredevil. By the time 1969 rolled around, the Comics Code Authority had relaxed a bit, though not a tremendous amount. At this time, Roy Thomas was writing Daredevil, with Gene Colan on art. Now, Dave has raved about Gene Colan in the past and suggested that perhaps his love of Gene Colan's Daredevil is because Gene Colan was the first Daredevil artist he was exposed to. My first exposure to Daredevil was John Romita Jr. art. And then from there, I went to Alex Maleev and The Essentials. Now that I've read the complete run, Gene Colan's Daredevil is my Daredevil as well. I don't think that Dave has put Gene Colan on that pedestal because it was his first Daredevil artist, or at least not only because it was his first. Gene just was the best. Anyway, as we learned when Dave discussed Daredevil 57 way back in podcast episode 6 from December 8, 2013, Matt Murdock had faked his own death and revealed his true identity to Karen Page. Dave then quickly outlined issue 58, cover dated 1969, the first of three issues we'll be discussing today, with focus on the Matt-Karen relationship where it belongs. This was a packed issue, and with good reason. The direct market of comic specialty stores didn't start until 1972. In 1969, comic readers couldn't guarantee that their local store would carry the specific title they wanted. So most comic book companies would keep all but their top sellers limited to single-issue stories. That meant that the deaths of Matt and Michael Murdoch needed to be wrapped up quickly, there was an ongoing plot thread with Crime Wave brewing, and Daredevil had just unmasked in front of Karen. That's a whole lot to deal with in a single issue. At this point, Karen Page has had a massive bomb dropped on her. The man she loves is not only alive, even though she thought he was dead, but he's been lying to her to lead a double life. She can overlook the lies, understanding why he told them, but isn't sure she wants to get involved with a man with such a dangerous line of work. To be clear, at no point does she ask Matt Murdock to give up being Daredevil. Instead, she just says that she has to think about it, thinking about the same stressed lives that are lived by the real-life spouses of police officers and people in the military. And Matt tells her that, no, he's anticipated that concern. He's already decided to retire as Daredevil to be with her. That choice was his, and he discusses it as though that choice was made in advance. So that's not something we can hold against Karen. So he intends to reveal this decision in the Parade of Honor the next day, and when you add in the material explaining how Matt became gainfully employed now that Foggy has a new job, this all brings us to page 10 of 19, with no sign of a supervillain. So this is pretty packed, and while we can certainly 
have some issues with Karen based on things that come later. At this point, it's easy to see her perspective and to sympathize with the issue she's dealing with. But naturally, if Matt actually does retire as Daredevil, then the comic would be discontinued. So something has to happen. The problem is that there's not enough space left in the issue to introduce a new villain that's got any depth to him. So there's only two available options. One is to bring back a classic villain, but Daredevil didn't really have any villains that felt like classics at this stage. The other is to introduce a new character who is devoid of depth, and that's the route Roy Thomas went. A washed-up stuntman took on the job of killing Daredevil for $1,000, and his employer provided him with a souped-up motorcycle to get the job done. This is George Smith, with the rather mundane real name and the superhero or supervillain identity of the Stuntmaster. This is in the peak of popularity of Evil Knievel, and putting the popular meaning of Daredevil into a comic named Daredevil was only natural. So Daredevil does manage to defend himself against the public attack, learning in the process that Stuntmaster was hired by Crime Wave, and that's pretty much the end of it. So Stuntmaster comes charging in, Daredevil gets on the bike, sort of manages to steer it into a crash, and that crash is enough that Stuntmaster is down and bruised. And it's when he's talking that he confesses that Crime Wave hired him. So in this appearance, Stuntmaster was a very simple villain whose sole purpose was to give Daredevil reason to stay out of retirement and keep operating. And he serves that purpose well enough. So at this point, he could have easily been forgotten, but still somewhat respected. He wouldn't have been a focus of derision, anyway. The next time he'd appear is as a flashback in issue 60, but that's only a single panel flashback, just sort of an in-story recap. And then he would return again in issue 64. So issue 64, cover dated May 1970, featured the proper return of the Stuntmaster. And again, in this point, the character actually works. He's been released from jail on a technicality, but he's honestly trying to go straight and make an honest man of himself. For a title about a guy who's both a lawyer and a vigilante, it's important to see that the system it works, at least for some people, and actually reforms them to understand why Matt's faith in this system remains unshaken. This is another case where we needed a simple villain to give time for the Matt-Karen relationship to develop. At this stage, Karen has moved to L.A. so that she can get things straight in her head, and Matt has chosen to follow. And rather than fall into the same trap that Peter Parker faced when both he and Spider-Man went to Florida when he originally faced off against the Lizard and people might connect the dots, Matt maintained a false identity when it, while in L.A. and told Foggy that he was going down to Florida so that people wouldn't notice that Daredevil and Matt Murdock were traveling together. Well, Stuntmaster is out in L.A. as well, and he's trying to get back into the movie business since he used to be a stuntman himself, and he manages to get himself what he believes to be an honest job. He soon learns that his boss has plans to commit a robbery, and he's going to strong-arm the Stuntmaster into helping, which he reluctantly does. And again, it's a pretty simple story, and since the Stuntmaster doesn't appear until page 13 out of 19, we are again without a lot of space for depth. He and Daredevil cross paths, of course. The first part of that Encounter ends with a cycle crash that puts them both out for a moment. The next time we see the Stuntmaster, he's bringing the loot to a truck for a rendezvous. Once the whole gang is together and they've announced who the ringleader is and what the plan is, then Stuntmaster starts fighting back like he's never fought before. And that's when the gang realizes that Daredevil and Stuntmaster have swapped costumes. So the guy who was stashed out in Daredevil's costume on top of the truck is actually a Stuntmaster. And the two of them work together to beat the gang up and bring them in. They eventually switch costumes back. I'm not entirely sure why the costume switch was necessary, but they do basically turn this into a sting operation that looks good for the Stunmaster's parole officer, showing that he really is trying to go straight. 
and he helped bring these guys to justice. So again, he's a simple villain because this particular story needs a simple villain for the amount of space we have. It really is focused on the Matt Karen relationship. And we do see Matt working the legal system for the stuntmaster's benefit when we get to move on. So stuntmaster isn't a subject of derision. He's more a vehicle so that we can see Matt Murdock working with the legal system and see that it's working to help turn people around. Then comes issue 67, cover dated 1970. Roy Thomas was passing the writing torch over to Gary Friedrich, and Gene the Dean Colon was thankfully still on art duties and doing a magnificent job as usual. So Gary came in with an idea for a story that would have given Daredevil exactly what his book had been lacking, and that is a truly great villain, and one who was great from day one, and not one who grew into an interesting and complex character like the gladiator would eventually do. So what was the idea for the villain? So to channel the great Rod Serling, picture if you will. Johnny Blaze, a man in love with Roxanne Simpson, a man with a talent as a motorcycle daredevil, a man who was raised in the business by Crash Simpson, the man he hopes to one day call father-in-law. The Simpson family means the world to Blaze. When Crash is diagnosed with terminal cancer, Blaze heads right down a road famously paved with good intentions and makes a deal with the devil to save Crash Simpson for the meager price of his own soul. The first task of his unholy servitude? Seek out the man doing good work in the devil's name and destroy him. So this is a beautiful origin concept, and it's got a justifiable reason for this villain to be specifically targeting Daredevil. So editor, now Roy Thomas, loved the idea. Unfortunately, that also meant that he thought the idea was just too damn good to be a guest star in another book and needed to have a book of his own. Under the Comics Code Authority rules of the time, villains couldn't have their own titles, and that wouldn't change for a long time. So this origin story that was tailor-made to be one of the most tragic and sympathetic villains in the entire history of comics was applied unchanged to a hero, for reasons that aren't on the public page. So when he did get to headline, first in Marvel Spotlight and then in his own title, he did so under the name Ghost Rider, which is another case of Martin Goodman staking a claim on a defunct Golden Age trademark for a completely unrelated hero. The Golden Age Ghost Rider was federal agent Rex Fury, and was just a well-trained human in a costume with no special powers of any kind. Thus, the first modern Ghost Rider was born with an origin that was in no way a hero, which is why I personally couldn't bring myself to enjoy the character until he was finally reworked by Daniel Way in recent years. Of course, Friedrich's idea still needed the character to fill that role. Instead of having Daredevil and Ghost Rider duke it out in a new TV show, Roy Thomas reworked the plot and just had Gary Friedrich script it, so that the stuntmaster is brought back yet again and was promptly cold-cocked and replaced by Stiltman. This, to me, is the start of his downfall from serviceable to mockable. He was taken out and replaced by Stiltman. No wonder this guy gets laughed at. So a second character was spoiled for the case of this issue, this time as a result of editorial interference. Stuntmaster was okay until he went down this road. Worse yet, Daredevil's first opportunity to have a villain that was great and could capture the imagination in his first appearance was postponed, pushed back from issue 67 to issue 131, as Dave has already detailed in podcast episode 8 from December 22, 2013. Stuntmaster wouldn't appear in Daredevil again until issue 138 in a crossover with Ghost Rider issues 19 and 20. We're not going to deal with that one today. Uh, fortunately, this whole debacle did leave behind a little golden nugget that Anne Nascenti would pick up and run with several years later. And that pretty much wraps up what we've got to say about the Stuntmaster now. So thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please give a listen to my own podcasts. 
You can search for my name, Blaine Dowler, on iTunes or through Bureau42.com, where you'll find RSS feeds for my comic book physics podcast, my Silver Screen Superheroes podcast, and X-Files Retrospective podcast, and a few podcasts that have wrapped up, such as Doctor Who 50 and 50 and others. So I'd like to thank Dave again for the opportunity to do this. I quite enjoyed it, and I'll be continuing to listen to Dave's podcast here in the future. Coming soon on Two True Freaks. Beware the beast man. A month-long celebration. For he is the devil's pawn. Of one of the greatest science fiction series. Alone among God's primates. Of all time. He kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Covering all the films. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. All the comic books. Shun him. The toys. Drive him back into his jungle lair. The entire phenomenon that was. For he is the harbinger of death. The Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. A month-long event. Coming soon. Only at twotruefreaks.com. Hey folks, Dave here again, on the mend and ready to get back to work, and I hear what you're saying. Dave, you haven't done emails for a while. What with the illness, doing back-to-back episodes? Well, I'm going to remedy that. I'm going to take care of some of the emails that are in my inbox, and uh, I'm going to spread these out over the next few episodes. So if you don't hear yours immediately, I am doing them a little bit out of order, just based on length. And I'm going to start with an email that I almost deleted, because I read the subject line and I just glanced at it. And I thought, well, porn's knocking on my door again. I just can't get it to stop. But I'm glad that I took another look because this email is from Andrew Leyland of Hey Kids Comics. And the subject line that threw me off is horny. It's in the form of a question. And I had to kind of question myself. What kind of mood was I in? But in the end, I just appreciated the pun. And Andy writes, Dearest Dave, Firstly, my apologies for tardiness in sending you a note regarding your show concerning Old Hornhead. As Dee Dee is A, a favorite character, and 2, you are a favorite show host, I can only offer a Robert Culp. Like a Mia Culpa, only with added Bob Maxwell. And say, so far you've been doing a bang-up job. I have greatly enjoyed the show so far, and really appreciated that you took the effort to find Josie's Bar and Grill. Such dedication is above and beyond, my good sir, and should I ever win the lottery, you and I and our respective other halves will head out there for a tasty beverage in that most salubrious of saloons. Lee Busby can come as well. I also find it interesting when you said you have never been to the Big Apple. Like London over here, somewhere I have only ever visited four times in my life, we assume all Americans must have been to New York at least once, given how much of your literature and pop culture is devoted to it. It's always nice to have preconceptions challenged. However, the reason I finally got my act together and wrote, sat in a relaxing infrared room that is apparently good for the circulation but just seems to be making my belly button sweat, is the long-awaited look at the Miller run. You recently talked about Blind Alley, the first Miller DD issue I read in UK reprint form, naturally. 
So caught up was I in your talk, and despite my considerable backlog of stuff I want to read, resembling a picture of Mount Snowden, I dug out my Miller Omnibus. Truly one of the best Marvel Omnibuses. I tore through that not-lightweight tome in a weekend. So much good stuff to come. It would be easy to dismiss a lot of it nowadays. So influential has this run become that it now borders on cliché, but it was still gripping and entertaining. Perhaps more so than any other time, this read-through, I laughed at how funny some of this work was. From the running gag of Josie's window to the dialogue often so understated, I found these comics tapped into a very rich vein of dark humor. And as I frequently lean into the black myself comedy-wise, I thought this was one of the things that held up most as I read. Anyway, good material coming up, and I can't wait to hear you get to it. Evidently, I really couldn't wait as I planned to read along with you, but like Turk, that went out the window. Best, Andrew Leyland. Andy, no need to apologize for not writing in. It's not required that you do so, but I do appreciate when we throw in the A, 2, or 1, B. However, I'm glad that you did write in, and I appreciate the Robert Culp. Now, believe it or not, I am walking on air. You have once again made me blush, as you are one of my favorite podcasters, and flattery gets you pretty much everywhere with me. I'm pretty simple like that. Expect that long-delayed package in the mail soon. It would have gone out already, but since you're in the UK, it turned out I have to declare everything that I ship, and there are some baubles in there that, based on the geekery, nothing salacious, uh, will be fun to document. Anyway, I am digging that you dig this show, even when I take it to CDO links of mapping things out. It's a nice side effect of a hero who lives in a real city. And one day, I do believe we need to coordinate a trip to New York and have a drink in Josie's Bar, quotation marks, and then maybe we can throw somebody out the window. And one of the biggest compliments that can be paid to a comic podcaster is that their work, my work, will lead people to visit or revisit the work that I'm covering. Shag fairly recently tweeted that the show led him to buy Essential Daredevil Volume 1. I count that in the win column because it's getting people into the character, into the book. And to hear that you plowed through the omnibus in a weekend, bear in mind this book is over 800 pages, proves its worth. When I first got the omnibus around Christmas, I tore through it equally fast. And that is a testament to how it, just how good it really is. As you said, it borders on the cliché. It's definitely not a light read, but this was just a binge. It was like watching a show on Netflix. And you keep telling yourself, I'm just going to watch this one more episode and suddenly it's Wednesday. And no worries about reading along. If I'm doing what I'm supposed to, it will all come back to you as we go through these. And I would be remiss to not mention that Andy is the co-host of Hey Kids Comics over on the Two True Freaks Network and has just finished a two-part look at Daredevil with his son Michael. The episodes were great as always, and they even covered Daredevil 163, which he mentioned in the email, Blind Alley, which guest starred the Hulk. And I was quite happy to hear that Andy and I were on the same page with that issue. So very awesome to hear from you, Andy. Definitely appreciate it. Next up is an email from Jared Cardos with the subject line, episode 18 and 19. Jared writes, I'm surprised that with Rico, you didn't add any Rico Suave gags because that was the first thing that came into my mind with this guy. Oddly, I kind of feel the need to defend Heather a little bit with her blurting out Matt's name. First, it would have been one thing if she had said this while Matt was fighting, say, the Gladiator or Stiltman. But she's watching him fight the freaking Hulk. And at the end, it looks like the Hulk could have actually beaten Matt to death. In that situation, I could forgive her for being emotional and accidentally blurting out Matt's name. Also, she only said his name fully once. The second time you mentioned was her only saying meh. I'm with you on the Infinite Comics. The comics themselves are cool, but the $2.99 price tag is pretty harsh. I don't think it needs to be $0.99 cents like DC's Digital Firsts, 
but 199 would be a lot easier to swallow considering the talent and the unique traits of the Infinite stories. You're mentioning that Daredevil made the wrong choice going back to Heather when Black Widow seemed to be willing to get back with him made me wonder something. Do you think it's possible that Matt and Natasha could ever get back together in the comics? Sure, comics are cyclical, and most superhero relationships are on again, off again, but has Natasha's relationships with the likes of Hawkeye and Bucky Barnes become more of her iconic relationships at this point in her life than her time with Matt? An even more interesting question. While I admittedly haven't read all of the original Miller books yet, one iconic relationship that I haven't seen go on again, off again is Matt and Elektra. Could that ever happen again? On that probably embarrassing shipping note, good episodes, and hopefully this means the next episode will have no singing. Jared Cardos. You know, Jared, Rico Suave was actually the first thing that came into my mind, but I couldn't stop saying Rico. He's a disco man. As for Heather, I'm just gonna be honest, it's hard for me to defend her. Admittedly, seeing Matt about to be pounded into jelly would probably be enough to make her forget, but still, she should be somewhat conditioned to not saying his name. But you have a valid point, and I'm going to put that in the agree to disagree column just because I can't bring myself to defend Heather. At least not in that aspect. As for the price of the Infinite Comics, I think $1.99 would have been fine with me. And I don't want to bash the material. The material was top notch, but as it stood, I ended up buying all four issues of Road Warrior. I enjoyed them a lot. But I couldn't stop thinking that if, I mean, what I basically did was pay $12 for roughly the same amount of content as a regular print issue. Which brings up a nice side topic. While we're here, again, the Irredeemable Shag posted on the show's Facebook page a question about the new volume of Daredevil being $3.99. It's at a price point of $3.99, $4. Shag has been reading Daredevil consistently since the 80s. And at this point, it's finally hit the wall where he's on the fence about keeping or dropping the book. And admittedly, I was on the fence. Now, I was about to cancel my Marvel Digital Unlimited, but, but, I realized this is a great way to work the system. Because not only do I get some good reference material, some nice side reading, Digital Unlimited has almost all Marvel books making their way there within a few months of being released. Now, I did the annual fee, so for about $70 a year, and you can get the higher price tag, I have no recommendation on that, I'm sure some of the perks are nice, but for $70 a year, you get a wide catalog, and let me break this down. It runs about $5.80 a month for a ton of books. Again, I'm not advertising, I'm not an advocate per se, but I've grown to love the service, warts and all. So I would recommend maybe going that route just to save some money, and that's my two cents on it. Now back to Jared's big questions, the shipping questions. Daredevil and Black Widow, I think they've both grown different directions. If they were to reconnect, it would probably be short-lived because Matt is not the person he was when they were together, and neither is Natasha. I'm not saying it would never happen, but it certainly wouldn't last long. As for Daredevil and Elektra, as we will see, that ship sailed long ago. And sure, they have an attraction to each other, but no, that would never get off the ground again. There's just too much baggage there. But good questions, Jared, as always. And I agree, no full-on singing from me. I am banned from it. And to wrap us up this week is an iTunes review, which is another five-star review. Excellent. It's from SFAN991, and it is entitled Great Show. It reads, not even a huge Daredevil fan, but I followed Dave over from his Superman podcast. Love Dave's passion and insight on comics. Thanks for the great show. No thank you, SFAN991, for the iTunes review. And folks, if you do get a chance, please review the show. Even if it is not a five-star review, it helps the show get a higher profile on iTunes and lets other people find it. 
And you can drop an email, as always, to the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com or with the handy contact form at daredevilpodcast.com. But that puts a fork in it for emails this week, and I will have more next week. And before I sign off, I want to give another round of thanks to W. Blaine Dollar for bringing a pair of excellent episodes. I definitely think he deserves a round of applause, and he is welcome to return if he wants. The door is open. So thanks again, Blaine. I really did enjoy these episodes. As for next week, it's back to business as usual, as I cover Daredevil 167, featuring Daredevil squaring off against the Mauler. What is his secret, and why does this story still make my jaw drop? Find out in seven days. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever things is near. There's never fight for what is right. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Oh!